I'm excited to share with you this morning um, as we continue to study the symbolism in the Passover and um, how that is reflected in the passion of Jesus Christ. And uh, you may be wondering, um, when are we going to get to the passion stuff? And I know we've mentioned a few of those things, but um, that's going to be uh, Palm Sunday and Easter. We're going we're gonna to start to look at the New Testament passages, and all of a sudden it's going to be, I hope, much clearer for you um, this time through. So um, if you pray with me as we, as we start our service. Um, God, I need you. Oh, I need you every hour. I need you. God, I know that I personally am particularly reminded of that as I step up to this desk to deliver your word, and I feel the weight of that. God, I pray that you would speak through me this morning, give me clarity, give me the words to say. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is a, it is a an incredible collection of wisdom and deep truth, the foundation of all truth. God, thank you for the way that your word divides into our lives and um, reveals to us things that we maybe didn't realize we were harboring, things that we didn't realize had crept into our lives. God, I pray as we look this morning at the significance of unleavened bread, that we will see clearly the picture that you intended in that. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you'll turn with me to Exodus chapter 12, uh, where we have been for um, very much of this series. Um, um, we're going we're to be looking here, and we're going to be in a few different passages, but um, just by way of review, um, Exodus chapter 12, starting in verse 14, we see the um, the institution of this, um, this, this new memorial day for this new nation. And it is, it is just incredible to, to look at scripture and see how God builds a nation. Um, most nations um, are established over time. Well, I mean, they're all established over time, obviously. But, you know, most nations, they kind of do things a certain way, and then um, collectively decide how much they don't like it, and then there's, you know, some kind of a revolution, like, all right, let's, let's start this thing over, and uh, maybe they maybe make some corrections based on a previous system. Maybe they repeat the same mistakes all over again. I mean, we never see that, right? But, um, but it's interesting, when God builds a nation, he takes a family and says, I will make a nation out of you, and then they don't hear from him for a while, but meanwhile, he blesses them and they grow numerically into a nation. And then when he leads them out, he gives them a law. There's you know, three things you need for a nation. You need a people. You need a law, some form of government that is going to organize these people, and you need a land, um, a, a nation that is um, just a people. It needs, needs a place for that to be connected to. And as we see here, God, God is giving them all of those things. And, and along with the law, it's, it's beautiful the way he gives them traditions, festivals, and holidays. He ordains what they will remember. And it's, it's powerful because you know, Jesus takes this same holiday, this, this Passover holiday, and repurposes it in the New Testament to be what we call the Lord's Supper or communion, um, this, this one of the two ordinances that Jesus left for us, one being baptism and the other being communion. And those are things that mark out the, those that belong to Jesus from those who do not. And so anyway, as we, as we look here, um, let's, let's start in, in verse 14 of Exodus chapter 12. God says, this day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, and you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. 
On the first day, you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day, you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day, a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared by you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day, I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened. In all your dwelling places, you shall eat unleavened bread. Um, it, we, we, we miss uh, Mitchell and Savannah. They've, they've been with us uh, most of the, pretty much all winter. And um, I love the honesty. You know, Savannah, as she's um, relatively new to faith, in Christ, and, and, and particularly some of the, the finer points of Scripture, just ask the honest question in our, in our Wednesday night discussion, what is up with the unleavened bread? I don't get it. Like, what, what even is it, and why is it so important? And I said, oh, man, I'm so excited for that one, and didn't realize at the time that they were going to leave the week before we preached this one. So I'm going to make sure she gets the, uh, the link. And uh, Savannah, as you listen to this, hello, we all miss you. Um, <clears throat> leaven is yeast. Um, if, you, if you didn't know that, um, that's, that's what that is. Yeast, um, for those um, who bake, Emily, looking at you. Um, for, those of you for those of you who have, who have ever baked bread, you know that yeast is a component. It is a, a little um, microorganism that is, that is you know, they, they culture it and package it in these little things that somehow stays, uh, um, well, if, you, if it's sitting in your pantry too long, ever, ever done that? Use yeast that's too old and you put it in the bread and then nothing happens. I don't know. Is that a thing that can happen? Or you, or you use too hot of, you know, the water's too hot and it, uh, um, you know, kills it. But it's this little microorganism that they can kind of culture and then they put in these little packages and you add it to um, a, a lump of dough and you work it through. And over a little period of time, maybe some hours, that the dough just starts to like turn into a living thing. It like starts getting big. I remember how much trouble I used to get in, you know, like lifting the, you know, um, in our culture today, yeast, leaven, is a thing that comes in a little packet that you put in the dough. In ancient times, leaven was a thing that they, they also cultured it, and the way that they did that was they would bake bread, make the dough, let it sit out, because yeast, the yeast microorganisms live in the air around us all the time. And if you, if you let that dough be exposed to the air, it will collect those, those little organisms. And then, um, you know, once you get enough of them, you know, they, they will grow and reproduce. And, and the way that you make it easier on you the next time you bake bread is you take some of that dough, a little lump of it, and you save it aside. Now, in the, in the ancient world, you were making bread, like, on the regular. So it's not like it sat for a week before you made bread again. They didn't have that luxury. And so you would set aside a little lump of dough that you would use again the next day, the next time that you made bread, and that had the, the organisms of yeast, the leaven in it, and you'd work that previous dough into the new dough, and then, you know, pretty soon the whole thing has got um, yeast in it and becomes leavened. It becomes, um, you know, delicious and not cracker-like. Um, <clears throat> for those of us who can still enjoy gluten, I'm sorry, Kara, I'm sorry. It's the best part. Um, <clears throat> and so yeast, it naturally occurs in the air around us. Now, there, there's, there's a difference, you see, because when we make bread today, and by we, I mean you, um, but when, when, when you make bread today, um, you use a, 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 I mean, there's like different kinds of yeast for different kinds of bread, I think. Um, baker's yeast, brewer's yeast, different kinds of yeast, I guess. Um, in the ancient world, you got what was in the air. But you didn't just get yeast. You also got local bacteria 
Okay, that sounds real bad. It's not always bad. Bacteria is on everything, and some of it's good. Um, but you get what's there. You get whatever naturally occurs in the region. You get the yeast, but you also get what comes with it. That's really important. Because the imagery that God is using of leaven, of yeast, in a lump of dough, is almost always in Scripture. There is a couple of um, there's a couple of examples when it's not, but it's almost always used. Um, well, the, the the picture is is some kind of an influence that spreads. Um, your dough is. Process, your, your bread process is going to be more efficient if you just work it, you know, work it through so it's already spread around. But even if you don't, it will work its way through the whole lump of bread. And so often in Scripture, and what we're going to look at this morning, often in Scripture, leaven is used to refer to a corrupting influence. And, and I want you to, I, I want you to have that in your mind, a, a corrupting influence um, Unleavened bread, therefore, represents purity. And so um, <clears throat> this, this time in, in Egypt, um, the, the imagery in Exodus is the corrupting influence of Egypt. Okay, and, and here's the thing. We have to have a biblical theology of all things. And one of those things is of ourselves. We would say anthropology, a biblical, biblical theology of, of man and of sin and what our nature is. And our nature is sinful. Our default state, left to ourselves, um, we don't become sinful because of the way we're raised. We don't become sinful because of the culture influencing us in a negative way. We become sinful because we are descended from Adam. The Bible says that for as in Adam um, you know, by Adam's sin, sin and death spread to all men. Very much the same concept of leaven, an influence that affects everyone. In the same way, um, first, first we, have to, we have to understand and, and identify sin as our default state, which makes us always susceptible to ungodly influence. Um, just, just like the way dough will become leavened if left exposed to the air. And this is, this is a concept that even if you, if you, even if you bake today, um, it, it is probably not immediately obvious to you. But in the ancient world, if you left your dough exposed to the air, it will become leavened bread. You're baking unleavened bread and you like, you know, leave it, make the dough so you can bake it later, you know, working ahead very efficiently. Um, guess what? When you bake it later, you didn't bake unleavened bread. It got some in it. It's the default state of things. It's the, it's the way it is. We see, um, we, we see, we see this a little more. Um, turn, turn in your Bibles ahead to Deuteronomy. Um, or actually, actually, no, oh, oh. Oh, sorry, you lost your place. Um, sorry, I spoke too fast. Um, yeah, we're going to Deuteronomy. Um, in, the, in the next chapter, uh, chapter 13 of Exodus, he says um, in verses 6 and 7, oh, never mind. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. There's this whole thing about, like, it, don't even have it. Don't have it in your houses. Don't have it in, get rid of it for this festival. And so as we get to Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is like the constitution for the nation of Israel. Uh, that's where we're going to see all of the, um, so the Exodus, you get kind of like the overview giving of the law. Deuteronomy, you get um, the specifics, a lot of the specifics of the law. And in Leviticus, you get all the legal precedents. Um, so if you're, if you're kind of wondering how these um, books fit together, that is a great way to understand it. But in, in Deuteronomy chapter 16, um, we get a little bit more, the, the, the Passover. So this is after the first Passover. Okay, so now going forward for the second Passover and then every year thereafter, how are we going to observe it? Okay, so Deuteronomy 16, starting in verse 1. Observe the month of Abib and keep the Passover to the Lord your God. For in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. 
And you shall offer the Passover sacrifice to the Lord your God from the flock or the herd at the place that the Lord will choose to make his name dwell there. You shall eat no unleavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat it with unleavened bread, the bread of affliction, because it's not as good. And it reminds them of Egypt, the bread of affliction, for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, that all the days of your life you may remember the day that you came out of the land of Egypt. No leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the flesh that you sacrifice on the evening of the first day remain all night until morning. You may not offer the Passover sacrifice within any of your towns that the Lord your God is giving you, but at the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell in it. There you shall offer the Passover sacrifice in the evening at sunset at the time you came out of Egypt. Julie, that answers a question you had on Wednesday. Why, why can't they, you know, don't they sacrifice in other places? And that, that's, when I read that, I was like, ooh, that's the answer to a question someone had. It had to be at the place where God says that, that that one piece of real estate on the whole planet that God has put his name on, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, that is the place where that sacrifice could be made. Why are there no sacrifices today? There's no temple. And it can't be anywhere else. And you shall cook it and eat it at the place that the Lord your God will choose. And in the morning you shall turn and go to your tents. For six days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a solemn assembly to the Lord your God. You shall do no work on it. In, in this chapter, God is, is giving them their three main annual festivals. The, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which you, you'll, you'll, you'll hear that and Passover. By the, by the first century in the New Testament, those are pretty much used interchangeably. Passover, unleavened bread, the first day of unleavened bread, that's the day of Passover. The Passover feast, that's the whole week. of it, it, They go together. And so... Um, think of those as the same thing. The Feast of Weeks and the Feast of Booths, and we're not going to go into those. The other two were celebrations where you'd rejoice at how God has brought you into this land and God has blessed you and God has given you um, the, 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 the fruit of your labors and things like that. This one, though, Passover, was a solemn holiday. Not that it was sad, but it was serious. You were remembering a very serious thing that God did for you. And similarly, um, Communion is that. I mean, we got Christmas and Easter that are major celebrations. Um, Good Friday and, uh, and by extension, you know, communion, those are, are, are somber a little bit. And so, <clears throat> so we see here this whole, this whole thing, the unleavened bread, you shall not have any of it in, in, your, in your house. And there's this reminder to, to get the influence that it, that it just, there's just times when you've got a clean house. If any of you hate clutter as much as my wife does, um, <clears throat> you understand. I don't, but I get it by extension, um, and it's probably a good thing. Um, but there comes a point where it's like, all right, there's just too much stuff. Girls can't keep their rooms clean. We're cleaning house. Oh, man, the trash bags come out, and then there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And there's great sadness in all the land at our house. But there's times just like we, we, can't, we can't keep our house in order. We have got to purge from our lives, purge from our houses, the corrupting influence of all of these small toys. You know, it's so much more than that, though. There are three corrupting influences for the Christian um, that, that I've identified, at least, and that, that I'd like to, um, for us to look at today. Um, three co- corrupting influences for the Christian, and they are sin, liberty, and legalism. Now, you say, surely there are more than three corrupting influences for the Christian. Well, yeah, there are. Um, but I think most of them can fit into one of these three categories. The first one, sin. You know, look back to Genesis chapter 3. We see the beginning of this. 
Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And, and, there, and there it is. It's a, so, when the, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. It also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And it, that, that is, there's the beginning, the, uh, what we call the original sin. This is the, the beginning of this, this corrupting influence, and the corrupting influence of sin, I mean, this... This is, there's a lie that says God is withholding the good life from me. At the heart of sin is a, is a belief system that rejects God and his way. We think about it, in order to sin, well, first of all, we are inclined to it anyway, um, and so it's not like it takes a lot of work to convince us to, but in order to sin, somewhere deep down we believe, like Adam and Eve did, that there was some good that God had not given them, and that in order to acquire that good, they were going to have to step outside of what God had said which, I mean, that part is true. They were going to have to step outside what God had said to acquire this thing, but it wasn't good. But this corrupting influence of sin is, is this lie that we believe that, that, that God's way, as laid out in Scripture, um, prevents me from experiencing some of the best that life has to offer. That's a lie. God is not withholding good from us. In, in fact, as, as we study scripture and as we, as we understand the gospel, the, the, the key message of the gospel is that God is good and we're not good. Our, our, our moral compasses are, are, are so messed up, we, we, can't even, we can't even see good clearly. We think that we're pursuing good when in reality we are pursuing evil. We think we're pursuing something that's good for us when in reality we're pursuing things that are bad for us. Sin, this, this, this influence of sin, this, this represents the corrupting influence of Egypt. Egypt served their, uh, you know, false gods. Egypt had, um, you know, plenty of, of cultural things that were not honoring to God, um, whether it be uh, their, their sacrifices, sometimes of, uh, you know, people. That's not Okay. The raised fist to God that Pharaoh had. How about the fact that Pharaoh in Egypt, in Egyptian, ancient Egyptian culture, Pharaoh was held up as deity. You worshipped him. The name, Pharaoh's name, Ramesses, and we don't know if that was we don't know if that was the Pharaoh at the time of um, of Moses, but uh, but a lot of a lot, several Pharaohs took the name Ramesses, which means son of God. Ra is their, their, their main god, the, the sun god, and Ramesses meant son of Ra. There's so much influence in Egyptian culture that, uh, I mean, remember, Egyptian is an, Egypt is an established nation. Abraham and his family go there as just, what, 70 people. And they live there for like a really long time. Even after the famine was over, they stayed there. And the, the pervasiveness of an established culture on a, a not established, you know, a, a family that has not been established into a nation yet is a strong influence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see Paul address this. Um, <clears throat> the church in Corinth. Now, Corinth, Corinth was uh, an interesting city. In the ancient world, or yeah, in, in the first century, um, in, in Roman culture and even you know, Greek culture, Corinth was, was kind of on the, on the Grecian peninsula. And um, 
it was pretty well known that um, anything goes in Corinth. If you were into it, you could find it in Corinth. And you know what you wouldn't find in Corinth was any judgment for it. And I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. But Corinth, maybe, maybe the closest thing we'd have in the world today might be Amsterdam. I don't know if that, I don't know. But it was, this, it was a place that was kind of proudly corrupt in its moral, um, yeah, in, in their morals. And so the church here is surrounded by a very, very, very um, difficult culture in that regard. And so, um, so here we see 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in the spirit. And if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump, cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Here's a church in a, in a morally bankrupt culture who had open sin in their congregation um, among some who would have claimed to be believers. And their response was boasting in their tolerance. Now, surely this has no parallel to our world today, does it? Man, it's like... uh, It's almost like the truths of Scripture are timeless. Here they are celebrating how tolerant they are. Look how we welcome everybody. Okay, now here's the thing. We're not turning people away at the door. But once someone claims to be a follower of Jesus, part of that is is now, okay, well, (laughs) if you're an unbeliever, we have no expectation that as an unbeliever you would act like a Christian uh, because that doesn't make any sense. God hasn't changed your heart. How, why would, there's no, you don't even have the Holy Spirit to help you change your behavior. We want to help you see that there's a better way. But for someone who would say that they are a believer, now that's a problem. We can't celebrate that kind of 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 sin in anyone's life. And so, Paul gives some specific instructions on how to handle that. And he says, your boasting is not good. And he, and he uses that example of leaven to help them see this, this corruption that you have allowed in your congregation, if you think it stays contained to those two people, I got news for you. Because when you move the goalposts, guess what? The end zone is in a different spot. I don't know, I'm using, I'm always out on a limb when I start making sports references, but... I think I think I used that right. I should get all sports references cross-checked by someone who knows what they're talking about. David, yeah, did I use it right? Okay. Oh, good. Thanks. <laughs> See, the truth, the the, the 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 lie, the lie of of the corrupting influence of sin is that God is withholding from me. But the truth is that sin is never good for me, and it always leads to pain. You see, when God says "don't" in Scripture. He's saying don't hurt yourself. Now, surely there's, there's more reason than that why we ought to follow God's law. I mean, he makes it real clear as he, as he delivers the law, you shall be holy because I am holy. If you represent me in this world, which, um, guess what? If you're not Jewish, you were made in the image of God. We represent God in this world. In all of creation, we bear his image. And... 
and we ought to represent God's image well in holiness. But he's also built a paradigm where sin has consequences and it is uncomfortable and it, and it hurts us because it's not good for us. So when God says don't, he is also saying don't hurt yourself. See, God, God's way is the good life, even when he leads us through the valley of shadow to get to the still waters and the green pastures. If you think of Psalm 23, God leads us. And sometimes to get where God wants to take you, you're going to go through some uncomfortable times. We've got to stop believing this lie of our, that our culture tells us that anything uncomfortable, anything painful, anything that we view as some form of harm is bad for us. I don't know about you, but I, I, in, in, in my relatively short life so far, I see that the times I grew the most were the difficult times, not the easy times. In fact, I think biblical history bears this out. It, the, the nation of Israel, which is kind of our window into what it's like to follow God, they never handled blessing and success well. The times they returned to the Lord were times of, of honestly, suffering. And when they experienced the blessing of God in their lives, it almost always led to complacency and eventually drifting far from God. God's way is the good life. We've got, we've got to lose this idea, this, this doctrine of harm, like we talked about a few weeks ago, that anything, anything uncomfortable, anything that hurts, anything that, um, is, uh, that offends me, is bad for me, and I can't experience that because that could mess me up. It could, or it could grow you up into a mature believer. There's a lot to be said about the doctrine of suffering in Scripture, if you want to say it that way, and um, it turns out those seasons are God-ordained for our good. Don't believe the lie that God is withholding the good life from you. Okay, moving on. One of the other one of the other lies that we tend to um, to believe. One of the corrupting influences in the life of the Christian is liberty. What do I mean by that? Well, if you turn with me to Romans chapter um, uh, chapter fourteen, Romans chapter fourteen, Paul addresses this in his um, master class on what it means to be a believer, which is the book of Romans. Starting in verse 12, he says, So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. All right, there's a whole sermon that we're not going to preach this morning, but um, that's truth. We all will stand before God and answer for the choices that we have made. Yes, we are forgiven through the blood of Christ. Absolutely, unequivocally. <laughs> Understand, forgiven or not, we will still stand before God and give an account. I know this because the Bible tells me so right here. And so he goes on, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil, for the, for the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. 
Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. Is it not good to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes, or it is not, it, it is good not to, that's important, um, it is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. And whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. The corrupting influence of liberty, the lie here is that I'll be most satisfied, I'll be happiest, I'll be most fulfilled if I engage in or, or pursue as much pleasure as possible, as long as it's not technically sin. This is, this is a real tough one in the life of believers. And, and, and Paul is saying here, just because you know that something is okay doesn't mean you need to go rub it in the face of people who think it's not okay. Because here's the thing, if they think it's not okay and they do it anyway, they violated their own conscience. They think they are sinning. And so the spirit behind that is a choice to sin. Even though, sure, technically the thing wasn't going to be sinful, um, but they think they're sinning and they're doing it. That's, that's the point that he's making here. I'm sorry if that's a little circular and hard to understand, but this, this right here in verse 22, blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. This is, this is really important in our lives because, because we need to see the lie that, that it, that it comes from. And, he, and here's, I'm not suggesting, we're going to get to legalism next, that's number three. Um, so it's the kind of the flip side of the same coin. But on the liberty side, we can, we can be, it's, it's one thing to be okay with something that's not sin, that somebody else is not okay with. Okay, that's, that's important to acknowledge. We're, we're not all going to land on the same square on every issue that is not necessarily sin. Not necessarily. That sounds like technical jargon. That isn't sin. And that's okay. But how we relate to one another in that matters a lot more. And, and, and why we choose to engage in that thing is really, really important because if the reason that we are pursuing permissiveness, pursuing, you know, we, we call it Christian liberty, but, but, but chasing after all these things, like, no, it's okay. I mean, the Bible says it's okay. I can do this. Um, if the reason is that we are believing this lie that we'll be the most satisfied if we can engage in and pursue as much pleasure as possible, as long as we didn't quite cross a line, nope, I'm okay. If that's where our heart is, that's a problem. That's a problem because it's, it's kind of like a, a slightly Christianized version of the first lie, which said that God's withholding from me. Um, this says that like God has now moved the goalposts and now all the fun stuff they weren't able to do in the Old Testament, now we can do. That's, that's not the right way to think of it. tell this story quickly, but I, I, I've, this is not my own story, but you know, I heard a, a, a preacher share one time about a, a friend of his who uh, had, had come to faith in Christ, but had come from, had grown up in, I don't know if it was Jehovah's Witnesses or something, but had grown up in, in some um, kind of um, other alternative uh, belief system that, in which he was raised to believe that caffeine was a... Um, it was sin. That's some kind of mind-altering substance, and um, you shouldn't have it. I apologize if that is a stumbling block to anyone. Um, 
And he carpooled home from work with some guys, always stopped at Speedway or Wawa or whatever, and got a, yeah, Speedway's not a thing down here. Um, always stop at the gas station and they you know, get a get a Coke or something on the way home from work. And he'd, he'd always sit in the car because that was like, I mean, that was just like the same thing as stopping at the bar on the way home and, you know, getting a couple sheets to the wind before you got went home to see your wife and kids. That's not, that's, that's a great, great pattern too. Um, but he thought these were basically the same thing because that's how he was raised. But there's kind of like a lot of peer pressure here. And eventually he decided, you know what? These guys are doing it. I know it's delicious. I'm having one. But in his heart, he still thought it was wrong. He was still pretty sure he wasn't supposed to be doing this, but he decided, I'm, I'm going to do this anyway. See, for that person, for that person, an immature believer who has, has, not, seen, has not seen that, like, okay, th- this is okay. I mean, obviously, don't, uh, you know, drink caffeine instead of sleeping and, you know, things that are healthy for you. That's okay. But because he thought it was wrong and was engaging it anyway, that is where it becomes sin. All right, that's always kind of a, um, I don't know, seems like a trivial example, but I'm not trying to get into all of the Christian liberty issues in this. But here's the, here's the truth. Okay, the lie is that I'll be, I'll be more, I'll be the most satisfied, happy, fulfilled if I engage in and pursue as much pleasure as possible, as long as it's not technically sin. The truth is that a permissive lifestyle leads to undisciplined living. And that is not what the Christian is called to. And so it's important for us to examine what's my, what's my motive? What's my motive in doing this thing? Am I engaging in sin because I think God's withholding the good life from me? Am, am I engaging in all these things that are you know, technically not sin, not caring who is offended by it, because I think that's how I'm going to be most fulfilled? This can lead to undisciplined living. And uh, our, our time is getting away from us, and so I want, I want to move on to number three. Number three is legalism, and this is the flip side of that coin. And this is what Jesus speaks to this um, in, in several different places. In fact, all three of the synoptic gospels, gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all tell this story where Jesus refers to the leaven of the Pharisees. The leaven of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. Remember, leaven, this thing that, that, that gets in and then spreads to everything else. This corrupting influence that, that gets in and corrupts everything else. The lie of legalism says, God will like me better as long as I obey outwardly, even if my heart isn't in it. God will like me better. God will bless me more. God will listen. God will do what I ask if I outwardly do certain things that I think he wants me to do. This, this idea that like we can get, we can do enough stuff to make God owe us a favor. Like, can we just like confront that right now and, and rebuke that mindset? That is, that mindset is absolutely um, false. If we look at uh, Matthew, Matthew 16, 6 is, is one of the, one of the, um, Passages where Jesus is, is speaking to this. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, uh, verse 6. Uh, so, so the Pharisees and the Sadducees are, are you know, following him around, and he just fed like 4,000 people. The Pharisees and Sadducees came, and they tested him, and they asked him to show him a sign from heaven. And he answered him and said, When it's evening, you say it'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, oh, it'll be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know better how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you can't interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he leaves them, departs them. And then he warns his disciples, kind of in response to that. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. And Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, we brought no bread. <laughs> In other words, they thought, <laughs> they thought Jesus was passively, aggressively like admonishing them for forgetting to bring bread after he literally just manufactured bread for like 4,000 people. 
as if that was the problem. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You have little faith. Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets you gathered or seven loaves? For the 4,000, how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I do not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leavened bread, the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. I think for a second, they thought they were going to have to eat like, you know, crackers the rest of their lives um, if they were going to be, you know, godly, yeah, which is not at all what he was saying. The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees is this hypocrisy that says, even though my heart is unbelieving, even though my heart is, is dark and selfish, if I outwardly do enough things that I think God wants me to do, then God's going to owe me a favor. God is going to have to bless me. God is going to... Um, He's going to like me better. He's going to listen to my prayers more. This, this isn't what Scripture teaches. He, he paints the, a picture of the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs that are painted beautifully on the outside and full of dead, rotting, corrupted bodies inside. This picture of outward compliance with inward unbelief is, is absolutely condemned by Christ. Their hypocrisy was, uh, as a, an article I read on, uh, on this topic said, it's having a show of piety without true holiness is like leaven in that it gradually increases and spreads corruption, puffing up a person with vanity. Lies and hypocrisy can poison one's whole character. Hypocrisy is so dangerous. This, this, this two-faced way of living, and this, this ought never to be true of, of believers, and yet the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees, these are the religious elite in their culture. People looked up to these guys because they were so godly, or so it seemed. We have to be careful to guard against religious elitism. Because when people start to look up to us, that starts to feel good. And so then, um, well, there's always things we know about our own lives that no one else knows. And so then we realize that, well, if they knew um, that, they uh, probably wouldn't look up to me the same way. And that wouldn't feel as good. So I'll just never bring that up. I'll just not let people say that. Or see that. I'll just, I'll just not, uh, you know, I'll just not mention those things. In fact, I may even kind of overplay, play up these uh, things I do that are so godly, and then people will be even more impressed. And this becomes this fake thing where we show up to church on a Sunday morning, we put our church face on, and pretend like everything's fine. And uh, if you're not fine, I don't know what's your problem, but because God's just blessing me so much because I'm just so godly, and look how, look how much I've got it together because I, well. I don't do that, so, you know, maybe you should. You know, it, it turns into this judgmental thing. It turns into this, this it's, in, it's not authentic. How can we have meaningful relationships among the family of God in the body of Christ? How can we have meaningful relationships if we can't just be honest with each other? Because here's the thing, you start, if, if you are dishonest with others long enough, you start to believe the lie you start to believe that, see, at first it was just to get other people to, to think of you differently, but now you've actually started to believe it too. And you think that you're better than someone else. Lies and hypocrisy can poison one's whole character. You see, the truth is that God wants true obedience that comes from the heart. In fact, in, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, Samuel is, is confronting Saul, who just offered some great sacrifices to God that were like the best of the spoils of a battle. 
sounds really spiritual. Except for the part where God specifically told him not to do that. And Samuel makes this point. He says, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as he does in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. He's not just talking about this outward compliance. See, you know, sacrificing to God, this was, you know, written down like this thing like you ought to do. And so he's doing that, right? Yeah, but, but, but his heart was like, hey, I can get God to owe me a favor. His heart was, was, was not to listen and obey the voice of the Lord, which had specifically said, everything you win in this battle, you devote to destruction. It belongs to me. You don't take it. truth of legalism is that true obedience comes from the heart. And, and here is, I never, I didn't understand this until, um, until I had my own kids. But early in my youth ministry career, I had a parent um, talk to me. I was meeting with him, and, and he had a couple of kids in our youth group. And I knew that he had grown up in a very, not just conservative, a very legalistic home. Um, I know their family a long time. And, and he said to me, he, he articulated it in a way I'd never heard anyone say. He referred to the temptation of legalism. Well, I had always viewed legalism as like, why don't you like want more rules? That, that seems, I wasn't really into rules per se back then, um, <clears throat> like a, at all. But so that never clicked with me. That always seemed like a really weird way to... Uh, make yourself think you're better than other people. Um, but as a parent with teenagers, he said, there's this temptation to believe that if I can just get my kids to act a certain way, if I can just get them to talk a certain way, if I can just get them to dress a certain way, if I can just get them to sit their butts in church enough, then I'll have godly, I'll have raised godly children. Uh, and it, and it, like, it was like this light bulb in my, in my mind and heart. And now that I have, as my kids get a little older, I, I see this. It's like, if I can just get them to outwardly comply, they'll be godly. And that is the lie of legalism. You cannot legislate righteousness. You can't. That has to happen in our hearts where we submit to the work that Jesus has done on the cross. When we accept, we cannot be good enough to be acceptable to God. Only Jesus could be acceptable to God. And, and it's only when I accept that I'm not good enough that Jesus can give us his righteousness and he can take our sin and We can be right with God, not on our own merits, not because we looked a certain way or acted a certain way or, you know, talked a certain way. It's like if we look Christian enough, we'll be Christian. No. Here's the thing. I would love to see laws passed in our country that reflect biblical values because I think that's good for people. Whether it's, whether it's saving unborn life or whether it's, um, you know, encouraging uh, godly households and families for kids to grow up in. Obviously, we want this. It is, it is good. But if we have the idea that if we can just get enough Christian-sounding politicians elected and if we can get enough Christian-sounding laws passed, we'll be a Christian nation again. Just let go of that. Nations can't be Christians. People can be Christians. And, and you cannot force people to look Christian enough to become Christians. And now we're all believers and look, look how much more God likes us than ever, everybody else. That, that, that's not how it works. That change happens in people's hearts. And so I'm not making a political statement here. My, my, my point is, you cannot look Christian enough to be Christian. You have to believe in your heart. And so... 
by way of application, see, all of these things tell different versions of the same life or the same lie, that the good life is, is going to be found in a way other than what God says. None of these three things, sin, liberty, or legalism, none of them fully trusts the good life to come from the hand of God. By way of application, um, back in Exodus chapter, chapter 15, we see another picture of this truth. And uh, I'll make this, this quick here. But uh, they, they just crossed the Red Sea. They just finally are free of Egypt. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea. And they went into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah, which means bitterness. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. There the Lord made for them a statute and a rule, and there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put in on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. And when they came to Elim, there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. There's something happening in this, and if you were in our um, our small group discussion a few weeks back, we, we, we addressed this, but... God, with a mighty hand outstretched, led his people out of Egypt. But then he had to do something else. It wasn't just that they got here and there was water and they couldn't drink it. No, 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 no. no. God wanted them to drink some of this water. We know now, like, because it tells us where this place is, you can go there and there are springs of water and they're disgusting. And they have very high levels of magnesium in that water. Some of you know what that means. They will clean you out. That's exactly what God, the Lord, your healer, was doing. He said, now I've gotten you out of Egypt, but now I need to get Egypt out of you. You don't need to be carrying with you as you follow me the corrupting influence of the life you led before. You don't need to carry with you the parasites and diseases you picked up in Egypt, either that were already in you or in your leavened bread, any of that. Nope, leave it all behind. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away and the new has come. The Holy Spirit does a sanctifying work in us that purifies us. And we see more and more clearly that the good life is the one prescribed by God. And not just to make ourselves do it outwardly, but to believe that in our heart. That God has what's best for us. Some application things here. Is there there a corrupting influence in my life that I need to purge? Am I carelessly exposed to culture? Don't forget this. Our default state is sin. Our culture, culture is always going to be sinful. In what ways are you carelessly exposed to culture? What kind of books are you reading? What kind of of things are you listening to? What kind of things are you watching? What kind of things have you permitted in your life, in your home, in your family? It is not in line with Scripture. Am I carelessly exposed to culture and getting to the heart of it? Do I trust that God's way is the good life? Leaven is in the air. Careless exposure to culture is dangerous. Corrupting influences can be in our lives or they can be around us in a way that can still corrupt us. We must guard and constantly reevaluate our exposure to such things because culture will move the goalposts if we let them. We pray with me. Heavenly Father,
Thank you for this incredible picture of unleavened bread. This clear imagery of the corrupting influence of the culture around us and how how vulnerable we always are to it because of our natural sinful state. God, guard us against allowing sin, thinking that you've withheld some good from us. God, guard us from this idea that we can be good enough for you to owe us a favor. God, guard us from being permissive and undisciplined in our lives. Always bring us back to your word and the truth in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.